0: Amen. If you have elementary age kids, we would love for them to be a part of our Vine Kids time. If everybody feels comfortable, we would love for that. See Mr. Austin right there? He is uh, your go-to guy for pretty much anything you need. But uh, for this morning's elementary age kids, he will be taking those from us. Again, want to remind you or just tell you again if you are here for the first time, we really are blessed and, and glad to have you. It is exciting to uh, be gathering back in our space kind of fully and feeling a little bit more comfortable at least. And so it's good to see a bunch of faces. And it's really great to celebrate Easter here after having gone without last year and doing a Kind of video service. It was uh, just a great reminder of the value and importance that community has in terms of our worship and how we were created to be as followers of Christ. And so we just continue to be grateful. Brandon and I continue to talk about how grateful we are for just the call of the church and what community looks like. And And so what we also talk a lot about how it's easy to slip into new patterns and the challenges there within. And sometimes when you fall out of community, you forget how vital it is. And so our real challenge as a church is to To remember how vital community is, and not just on Sunday mornings, but in in close-knit small groups. We've always wanted to be a church that was a community that was made up of community. Um, our biggest goal is not that you gather here on Sunday. Our biggest goal is that you have this a, a vibrant, alive encounter and, and uh, relationship with Jesus Christ and that that becomes fully realized in the context of community that takes place in multiple places, not just here, but in small groups and in Bible studies, in uh, groups of men and women that are gathering together, in prayer groups and circles and all kinds of places we want you to find that sort of depth Uh, to be known and to know people. And then our expression as we gather on Sunday morning is really for a singular purpose of just glorifying the Lord, to just come together and celebrate and worship the God who literally has given us a reason to rise out of bed in the morning. And so... Uh, we're excited that we're kind of getting back into some <clears throat> some rhythms. And we know things will, will be different for quite some time, but but that's okay. All right, so all that being said, as things started shifting this direction, we began to get back into our normal kind of pattern and thought about teaching. And, and I've mentioned this quite a bit, and I, I won't go into it too deep, but our real goal is that you become a lover of God's Word. Like that is my whole heartbeat as pastor and as teacher, is this, that you have this love affair with the Word of God. Um, our goal is not that you come back or that you feel comfortable or that you're entertained every week. Our real goal is that you would just encounter God's word and it would come alive to you. It's how we like to teach. And so we love to work kind of expositorily through text so that you get to experience all of it's goodness and fullness. And as you walk through life and you walk through your relationship with Jesus, you will always be drawn back to God's Word. It is the authority. It is the breath of God. It is the authority for all that we do in all matters of faith, life, and practice. And so we always want to return there. It will hold the highest and supreme place of authority in all that we do as a church. So all that to say, we love to unpack Scripture that way. But that's not without its problems. Um, there's a lot of reasons why churches don't fully engage through patterns of texts like this because you run into complicated things and on Sunday mornings our western mentality has been our typical goal is to do a lot of entertaining to create some consumer models so that you feel encouraged and you feel supported and you can worship and and all those things but we don't want you to actually have to be too deeply challenged theologically right at least for a lot of our churches Um, it's just it's a hard thing to do. But when you go through Scripture, you run into these places. And Hebrews is one of those books that is so vital and so important theologically that it's got some places in it, and it will just make you go, "Now, well, what is God doing? What is our author saying? What does this mean for us, and how does this turn my paradigms Upside down, and you have to kind of deal with it. And we knew that going in, and that's kind of why we love it because it's this incredible picture of God's redemptive move from the whole of creation to Christ's return. It's this incredible picture laid out of what Christ has done, and it really boils down to two main things the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. That Jesus is above all things. There is nothing, whether it's the law or angels or people or anything that is above Christ. He is supreme in all things and in him all things hold together. Right, And he is sufficient, meaning that he is enough. It is never Jesus plus anything. In other words, in our relationship with Christ, we do not need Jesus and the law. We don't need Jesus and great moral living. We don't need Jesus and tolerance. We just need Jesus. He is sufficient which means that everything in your life, right, is secondary and subject to Christ. And these are the patterns of truth that Hebrews lays out, that Jesus is enough, that he is sufficient, and that he is supreme, right? In a world, that wants to tell us wholly different. It wants to teach us that that is not who Jesus is. And the Jewish believers that were actually hearing these messages that were played out in Hebrews were facing something very similar. They were actually facing the voice of a community that was saying, It's not really all about Jesus. The community around them did not believe that Jesus was Messiah. They believed that Jesus was at best a traveling rabbi. But that was it. He certainly wasn't God, and he certainly was not Savior. And so they're facing this constant voice saying, it's not just Jesus. You need the law. You need to return to your family. You need to give up this idea and just return to the patterns of the way things were. And we have a very similar voice in our culture that is telling us all the time that it can't just be Jesus. It has to be something else. Or we have to be tolerant of all of these things. And by tolerant, not meaning uh, I don't mean like, um, oh, you have to be understanding. I mean like we have to be fully engaged in identifying culture or whatever that might be as part of this saving movement. right? That it's Jesus plus something else. Hebrews just says, no, no. And so it has its amazing places and its deep challenges. So we, we started off on this journey three weeks ago, took a break for Easter, and, and I won't recap it all, but basically chapter 1 in Hebrews is really establishing who Jesus is. He is the heir of all things. He is the, uh, the creator of all things. He purifies us from our sin. Like. Our author lays out all these incredible things that Jesus is. And then he takes the second part of chapter 1 and he says, let me start off and remind you that he is better than even and bigger even than the things that you think are bigger than he is, like angels, for example. And he ends chapter 1 by explaining to us why Jesus is bigger and better than the angels. Because the Jewish people believed and held on to a tradition that because the law was handed down on Mount Sinai to Moses, Moses was administered to by angels, that the angels therefore had a higher created order even than Jesus himself. And so Hebrews, the author begins to tell us saying, no, Jesus is creator. He is purifier. He is heir to the throne of God. He sits at God's right hand. He is higher and better and bigger than the angels because he has a name that is greater. And that name is the son of God. And because Jesus is in fact God, he is therefore bigger and better than the angels. And then in chapter two, we saw him move into this idea, our author moving to this idea that, that Jesus is bigger than the law. That he's bigger than the law. And this is important because these believers or these Jewish believers were being faced with a pressure from the community that says, no, 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 no. The law is supreme. And of course, what we know to be true biblically about the law is that the law was fulfilled in Christ. That it failed to do what Jesus did, which is rescue and save. The law condemns, but the law doesn't save. And Jesus saves, right? So we have this whole incredible picture of who Jesus is. And as we continue in chapter two, where we're going to pick up today, we're going to take a little bit of a twist, right? Where our author is going to remind us of why these theological truths are so incredibly important and we have to know them and understand them. Because if we don't, we will find ourselves pushed by culture into a place where we alter the gospel. And if we don't stand on theological truth, we alter the gospel. I had a a seminary professor one time that said, Theology only, basically, good theology only exists to prevent us from bad theology, right? Because theology, we've all got one. But good theology is vitally important because it prevents us from bad theology. And so understanding good theology is important because it prevents us from running headlong into trading the gospel in for something else. And that's what we're going to find ourselves this morning, as a reminder from our, our author about why good theology is incredibly important and what it prevents us from. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Well, we're going to be in the first few verses. Uh, or I'm sorry, verse 5 through 9. I meant to go through 18, but it's just not going to happen. So we're going to go through 9 today. We're going to kind of bump our way through it, because I was telling Brandon this morning, I mean, these are... These are challenging texts. You're going to see it right away um, because our author's doing something much different than just trying to entertain. He's trying to lay a foundation for why Jesus is exactly what all of Scripture says that he is and why that matters and why it should change the way that we think and change the way that we live. So as you turn there, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, let's, uh, let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we're just going to kind of dissect it a little bit and see where it leads us. Lord, I do thank you for, I know all that's a lot, and I know what talking about this stuff is sometimes um, challenging, but the truth is, God, is that it's so vitally important to run headlong into Scripture, to just embrace it, to just say, God, what are you saying and what are you doing and what do you have for me? The best way to just dive into Scripture is just simply open it and read it and say, God, teach our hearts. And so I'm excited about this study of Hebrews because it's not one that's going to let us off the hook. It's not one that we're just going to be able to walk out and get a pat on the back and go, hey, yeah, I need to work on friendship or I need to kind of adjust my marriage or or, I need to stop trying to be prideful. It's going to be one that challenges part of our soul that says, why does God love me? It's going to be one that presses into us and says, why does it matter that Jesus actually died? It's going to be one that presses and says, why does God, who is the infinite creator of the universe, why is he even mindful of me at all? It's going to be one that pushes some of those boundaries, and I love it because it is incredibly important. And so, Lord, we come before you with those thought processes in mind, asking you just to teach our hearts and souls. Take a moment right where you sit and just ask God to teach you this morning. Even if some of these truths seem somewhat normal or somewhat repeatable, or maybe you've heard them before, just ask the Lord to press them clean into your soul and to teach you something this morning that you just desperately need to hear. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you. Uh, I say this every week in probably the exact same words. We. We want to be a church that prays for the people around us. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Pray for somebody else. Pray that God would move in them, even if you don't know their name. Or maybe it's your spouse. Maybe you haven't prayed with them or for them in years. Use these moments as opportunities to pray for the people around you. To believe that God will do something great in them. To care more about their growth than even your own. Ask the Lord to move in them. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. We ask this: you take this text that is deep and really powerful and that you would just sort of break it down for our hearts to grasp and understand and that would lead us to a place of true, true gospel understanding. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So two weeks ago, right before we started Easter, we left that beginning part of chapter 2 With a really stern warning from our author, he said, basically, listen, pay attention so that you do not drift away. In other words, so you don't drift away from a true gospel, from a true and great salvation. It was the first warning that we actually see in the book. All of chapter 1 was a setup to who Jesus is. Chapter 2 begins by saying, don't exchange this for a lie. Be careful that you won't drift. And we talked about how drifting is passive and how we've got to become active in our faith. And, and that's going to be this sort of overarching umbrella that we're going to sit under as we continue down chapter two. We cannot forget that because drifting is a very active and very real, or a very passive and very real thing. None of us decide that we're going to set out and just, you know what, I'm going to drift away from the Lord today, or I'm going to try and make my summer the spiritual dry time of my life. Nobody sets out to do that, right? It just sort of happens. And so that's the umbrella is saying, be careful. Drifting is real, and here is one of the things that will prevent us from drifting, and that's having a deep and true anchor into a deep theology that shows you exactly who Christ is, what God has set apart for you as followers of Christ, and how we're called to live into that. And that's kind of where we're going to be as he continues in chapter 2. So let's look at verse 5. We'll go down through verse (coughs) 9. Excuse me. Um, We'll go uh, yeah down through verse 9. All right, so this is where we start. It is not the angels that have been subjected to the world to come, that are subjected to the world to come, which is what we are speaking about. But there is a place where someone has testified this. What is man that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and you put everything under his feet. And putting everything under him, you left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So even upon hearing it, you can kind of already hear its complexities, right? It's even at times hard to read. It's It doesn't make sense totally jumping off the page as to what's Unfolding. I mean, even that first line, it is not the angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. As you begin to think about this, these are complex texts that can't really be set on their own, and we have to look at them in the context of the whole. And all of chapter 1 is really written to this idea, who is Jesus and what is the created order of things? And why is he better and bigger than the angels, right? We have to understand those things because he's going to turn around and go back to that peace. And that's why he draws the peace of the angels in here. It's not the angels that are subjected to the world to come. In other words, it's not the angels who are going to rule the world to come, right? He's reminding us of a created order. Now, there's three really important theological things in these few verses that I'm going to try and pull out and help you see and I've wrestled with this week that are just vitally important. And that is the first one is this. God's original intent for humanity, for mankind, was to rule the earth. Okay. That was his original intent. We're going to see it played out in a couple of different ways. But the first part of understanding that is to understand that man's destiny is actually higher than that of the angel's. And that's why he's drawing upon that word here. It's not the angels that are going to be ruling the world to come or ruling the earth. That's not their place. Now he's reminding these believers, these Hebrew believers, of an argument that he made in that first chapter, which is Jesus is greater and bigger than the angels. Why? Because he's been given a better name. That name is actually the Son of God. The angels have a very specific role in created order, and that is that they are to administer to and worship and point to Jesus, who is king. They are servants to the king. Now, you have to understand that the Jewish people were facing a very challenging mental process here because the people, their community, were basically saying Jesus isn't God, and he's certainly not Savior. In fact, the angels are higher and bigger than Jesus because they gave Moses the law. And so our Hebrews author is actually making a very intentional argument here in which he is replacing the created order that people want to make with the created order that God actually did. And he's saying the angels are not going to rule that. That original intent was actually designed for humanity. We have the original intent to rule the earth. And this is how he points that out. It's not the job of the angels. And he quotes or semi-quotes and kind of quasi-quotes Psalm 8. And, he, and, and Scripture does this all the time with itself. It kind of takes a piece of it and it uses it to make a bigger and better point. Okay? And that's what they do with uh, Psalm 8. So we know that if God's original intent was for humanity to rule the earth, and the angels don't get that role, right? That's not their role. Here is why he says that to be true. And he quotes Psalm 8 here uh, when he says this. There's a place where someone has testified, and that's Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, that you made him a little lower than the angels and that you crowned him with glory and you put everything under his feet? So God's original intent for humanity is actually laid out in Psalm 8. If you go and read it, it's this incredible psalm in which David kind of reconciles humanity against the goodness and majesty of God. And you can almost see it if you go and read it. It feels like David's standing out on maybe on top of his palace or outside, and he's looking at the stars in this incredible grandeur. And it starts off by saying, Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And it's this layout of the incredible vastness of God and who he is compared to kind of tiny humanity. And Psalm 8 lays out this created order and it places this incredible value on humanity even in the scope of the goodness of God. And so he kind of quotes that there by saying, who is man that you are mindful of him, that in all of this incredible vast beauty and things that you are mindful of, of man, who is the son of man that you care for him, that you put all things under his feet and his control? Now, this is where our text gets complicated, it gets challenging. This is the kind of things you have to wrestle with because the psalmist David and our author are going to take these passages and they're going to lean them in different ways. The psalmist is leaning into the idea of humanity as the son of man. Uh, most people believe that he's referring to Adam. The first and perfect creation, right, that was supposed to rule over the earth. As you read in Genesis 1, Adam and Eve were supposed to not only rule over creation all dominion, but they were in charge of all things and had this incredible relationship with God the Father. That was the first created order of things, that humanity was supposed to rule over this earth, that God had breathed life into and made. You can go back and read Genesis 1, 26 and 28, where he talks about God talks about God giving, giving humanity dominion. Over creation, that even though man was created, God has given him the ability and the right to rule over that creation in perfect harmony with God. And our psalmist leans that way, and it leans in this deal like, God, in all of your infinite, incredible glory, why would you even think about giving creation this incredible task? Why would you be mindful of creation? The Son of Man, Adam, who you breathed life into, you put all things under his feet, right? He would rule. All things. Now the author of Hebrews takes that and he leans a little different way. And he's going to lean into Son of Man as actually the person of Jesus Christ. And he talks about the Son of Man being made, both the psalmist and our Hebrews author, being made a little lower than the angels. And to make this even more complicated, that phrase is really ambiguous in the Greek as it translates. It can translate as a lesser degree and it also can translate as a smaller amount of time. So if if you lean into the psalm idea, you get this idea that that if we look at the Son of Man as humanity, and that he was made a little lower than the angels, meaning that he didn't get the sort of supernatural power that the angels were given, yet they were still given dominion over all creation. A little lower, meaning they didn't quite get that supernatural power, but they were given great dominion, right? Humanity was. But if you lean on the Son of Man as Jesus, you see this idea of laying, being made lower than the angels. You get the idea of the translation for a short amount of time in which Jesus lays down his glory, takes on human form, and doesn't step back into the glory until he ascends to be with the Father. So you get these differing pieces. But they're all leading us to this one simple place, which is God's original intent for humanity was to rule the earth. It is an incredibly vital, important theological point. That's not something that was given to the angels. It's not something that's given to other created beings. It's not given to the beasts of the field or the fish of the sea. It is given to humanity. However, there's a massive problem with that intent. And that problem is that sin broke in. And you can actually see it written in here in verse 8. Right? When man has been given dominion and the ability to rule over all of these God put everything under his feet. Listen to verse 8. Yet in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is subject, not subject to him. Yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to him. So he's saying, God put everything under his rule, under the rule of humanity. And there's nothing that God didn't give humans the dominion to rule over, however at present you don't see it happening. And the reason for that is because sin has entered the picture and broken God's original intent for humanity. So the fall happened. Sin broke in through Adam and Eve, and disharmony happened. It happened through uh, Adam and Eve's sin. It broke harmony with God, and it broke harmony with creation. In fact, Adam and Eve poised to have this harmonious, perfect relationship with God creator in which they ruled in dominion over the earth, Yet they chose sin, and sin severed that and broke that harmony into disharmony, and it broke all of creation. And God basically cursed the earth that we will have to till it and work it. And sin and death and injury and pain have entered the picture and affected the whole of creation. So much so that Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, that their first son killed his brother, and that since then, all of creation groans with the reality of sin. And hence the reason, our, psalmist, or our, our author says, that we don't see at present God's original intent, which is humanity ruling in dominion over the earth, in, perfect, in perfection. Because we have broken that original intent, and sin is real. Now, these are vitally important things, because the Hebrew people did not necessarily believe that this is exactly how this shaked out. They believed that, yes, sin entered the picture, but that it was redeemable through perfect moral living. And that's not the case. Because even at the present, humanity was not ruling in dominion as God intended. All right? So you got these two first deep, deep, deep theological points, right? God's original intent for humanity was that we would rule the earth. And that was not something the angels were given. So quit making that argument. The angels are not better. God set them aside for a very specific creative purpose in which they serve the king who is Jesus. Right? And they are here literally to protect and to guide us home. We talked about that in chapter 1. You can go back and listen to it. In that, he lays out what that created intent looks like in Psalm 8. God, you are majestic and you are holy and you are mighty. Why would you even be mindful of creation, yet still your creation? You gave the right to rule over the earth with you in perfect harmony. This is what you did, that you were mindful of your own created beings, and yet you gave them this incredible power to rule. That was your intent. To have this beautiful, harmonious, true relationship with humanity that you made. And to give them power and perfection to walk with you. To rule alongside. That was the intent. And yet sin somehow shattered that intent through the choice of one, two people. And thus broke all of harmony. Shattered all of creation And sin and death and injury and pain and tears, and they're all real because sin has effects. And those effects can be traced through the whole of creation, not just through humanity. It affects the earth and all that inhabit it. But the third point is the most glorious one and the most vital one, right? Which is where our our author is leading us to. And that third point is essentially this. God's original intent for man will be realized through Jesus Christ. So look at verse 9, right? So even though at present we see that those things are not subject to him, to humanity. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death. For everyone. So here you see why our author takes the Son of Man and moves away from the idea of maybe Adam and moves toward the idea of Son of Man as Jesus Christ and even names him so. We see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels, traces back up to Psalm 8. Now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The third thing here and the most important part is that God's original intent for humanity will be realized through Jesus Christ. And that idea in 8 and 9 is actually perfectly traced out in Paul's theology to the Philippian church in 2, 5 through 11 where he says, Look, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God gave him the name that is above every name. That at his name, Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That theological progression is what is laid out in Hebrews 8 and 9 that Jesus laid down his glory, that he was made a little lower than the angels for that short amount of time in which he laid down his glory and walked this earth perfect and sinless, was crucified and walked and tasted death. And I'm not talking about like a nibble, like tasted, like fully engaged and consumed death so that by God's grace, right, we might be crowned in glory with Christ for all those who believe in him as Savior. That is essentially what our author is working us towards. God originally intended that humanity would rule with him in harmony. But sin entered that picture, broke that harmony, shattered it and destroyed it, and the effects of sin are real. And so what did God in his perfect, incredible redemption do? All of creation and scripture point to this redemptive story. That God would send his son. And his son would come. And he would lay down his privilege from heaven and all of his glory and he would put on a broken human body and he would walk sinless, morally perfect and that he would voluntarily die and that he would taste death so that you and I would never have to. This is why good theology is so deeply important. Because you cannot do what Christ did. You cannot earn your way, make your way, or make it happen. You cannot morally bridge that gap to God's original intent. cannot happen. You will fail. It's why Judaism is empty, because it lacks the Savior. The moral law will never be able to do what Christ did, which is save. And so what our author ends with this idea is that Jesus is going to redeem and become this realized perfection in which we as followers of Christ will now share in his glory. We will share as co-heirs with Christ where he rules. We will rule all the original intent that God had will be made possible through Jesus Christ. That if we put our faith and trust in him, we are crowned in his glory and we will rule with him, not because of what we did, but because of what he did for us. Now, if you put yourself in the place of these Jewish believers, he's giving them the argument to fight the cultural pressure that says Jesus wasn't enough. He lays out in those few verses the idea that Jesus is enough. And so as we, as we think about these things and these compounded kind of deep theological truths that are vitally, vitally important, and we think about how they play out in our life. I've, I've kind of just come up with three small things that I want you to see as we make our way to this table, as we, we move our way to the actual action of what Jesus did. I want you to understand these three incredibly vital points. And that's this the first one is that majestic and mighty Creator God loves you and cares for you. There's no way around it. If you read Psalm 8, and I encourage you to go back and read the whole thing, not just a little section there in Hebrews, it's incredible. You can see this idea that majestic holy God who who breathed life into humanity, into creation, who formed it out of the dust, who made the trees and cast the galaxies upon galaxies upon galaxies into the sky, that he is mindful of you, that he cares about you, that he knows what you walk through and that he suffers alongside you, that no matter what you've been told by your parents, by the world, by the people around you, you are lovable and God calls you his beloved. Majestic, holy, mighty, God cares for you. I don't care what you've done or what road you've walked or who's told you otherwise. It's a lie. God cares for you and He is mindful of you and the whole of creation, means that your place in here to Him is immensely valuable. It's immensely valuable. And that's not for somebody else. Most of us believe that about creation. We just refuse to believe that about ourselves. We don't even see the value in our own life. We look in the mirror. But to do that is to discredit the God who made you. And the God who in Psalm 8 tells you, David tells us, tells us that he is valuing you, that he is mindful of you, and that he cares about you, even in your sinful state. So we see that majestic, mighty, holy God loves you and cares for you. The second thing that we see in there is that sin is all too real, and so are its consequences. God does not think sin is cute. It's not funny. He doesn't play games with it. He actually hates it. Scripture is very clear about that. A lot of us want to believe in a very docile God that kind of sees our sinfulness as sort of a youthful exuberance, kind of like, oh, some things I did when I was in college or whatever. And as long as we make our way back to the church and about time we have kids or get married, that God kind of laughs it off. But sin is actually poisonous and leads to death, and God hates it. It's detestable to him. In fact, it's so real that it alienates us from who he is that the only redemptive move was to send his son to die so that you might have life. And if God would do that, why do we play games with sin? Why do we pretend that God doesn't care? And why do we harbor it in our heart? Why do we entertain it? And why do we say that it's okay? Part of following Jesus is the active movement of ridding our lives of all sin at all times, fighting violently against that which God has died to give us life over not becoming complacent with it, and not becoming okay with it. If you have sin in your life that you've become complacent with, you have got to fight to rid yourself of it. It brings death. And it may not bring death in terms of your salvation because you've given your life fully to Christ, but it brings death in so many other ways, and its effects and consequences are incredibly real. And it hurts the people around you and is deadening your heart. And oftentimes it leads directly to your drift that we saw last week or the week before when we were in Hebrews. Sin leads to that passive drift. If you wonder why you wake up and all of a sudden after a few months you just feel like your spiritual life is mediocrity. Check your heart. What poisons have you let in and fed? Sin is all too real, and so is its consequences. But the third and most incredible, brilliant thing that we, of course, see laid out in verse 9 there is that same truth, which is we are fully alive in Christ. Fully alive. Which means that when you surrender your life to Jesus, when you say, Jesus, I cannot do this, I do not have the wherewithal, I do not have the ability, I can't have the moral aptitude, I can save myself, not at all. But I surrender my heart and my life to you Not only are we promised salvation, but what Scripture tells us is that we are made fully alive. Which means without Christ, we may be drawing breath, but we're not living. And I say this all the time. When we talk about eternal life, most of us think about that day when we die. But if you really read Scripture, eternal life begins the moment you say yes to Jesus. We begin with this full, real, abundant life that most of us are not realizing because we've allowed the sin, the worry, the anxiety, the fear to press us down and to hold back that fully aliveness. And so we hold our breath for the day that Jesus comes back and we miss week after week, month after month, year after year of full living in Christ. Because to live in anticipation and not live in fullness now is actually broken. Broken. We're called to live in anticipation and live in the fullness now. So what we see our author doing is getting us all to this place. God had this incredible original intent. And that was for you to walk in beautiful harmony with him. To rule over this earth as humanity that he breathed life into and made and created with his hands and loves and adores. Laid out in Psalm 8. Mindful and cares about you. But sin has a way of just crushing everything. And it broke that harmony with God through Adam and Eve and we get all the effects of that and we harbor those effects and we love those effects and we run with those effects. And it's destructive. But God, in his incredible, infinite, incredible, redemptive plan sent his son and that God's original intent will be realized through Christ because we couldn't do it on our own. So Jesus lays down his glory, walks this earth, dies, tastes death for everyone and next week we'll see who the everyone is. Taste death for everyone so that we might be fully alive in him. And we get to rule alongside Christ in full dominion over creation. This is why good theology is so important and why we want you to have a love affair with Scripture. Because this is where Scripture leads us. It leads us to the idea that majestic, holy, mighty God loves us, cares for us, demonstrates that. And that's what this table's a picture of. That sin and death, although they're real, they are not final. That through Christ we have a fullness and an aliveness that we have been given today to walk out as we live in anticipation of Christ's return. This table is this picture of everything we just talked about. If you could wrap up that little theological bundle and lay it out, it would look just like this. And that was the intent of God. God wanted to give humanity something by which they could share together that would draw believers from all walks of life, all places, Greek or Jew or wherever, would draw them together and they would be able to lay aside everything else and say, at least we have this and we will do this to remember what Christ has done for us. He gave humanity this incredible gift. And he calls humanity to participate in it. Believers to share in this truth together. Because it centers us. It reminds us, yeah, we can argue about who can dance here or not dance here or what lyric is here or what you can wear to church all day long. And we can split the church a thousand different ways. But if we just pay attention to what Christ did here, we're drawn together. And what we realize globally is that we have much more in common with our believers and we actually have differences because this table is what centers us on truth. On the very night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night that all of his disciples would flee and take off, on the night that he would even wash their feet and even point out the fact that they would betray him, he still gathered together with them and gave them this incredible gift that would be passed on to us, the church. And after giving thanks, he took a loaf of bread and he said, This bread is my body and it is broken for you. Do this In remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup and he said, This cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. That as long as you take of this bread and this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. This is the great promise. And this table is not a denominational table, it's actually open to all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul himself tells us that we should not take this lightly, that we should pay attention to our hearts that we should examine our inner workings of our soul and purge ourselves from sin before we take this meal because of how serious the nature um, that unfolds within it. So as we prepare to take communion this morning, what I ask you is just to examine your heart in light of everything that we saw in Hebrews 2. God's original intent, the fall, the redemption of Christ, the unworthiness of humanity for all that God would do. Yet the incredible beauty of a God that would count us worthy and that would call us redeemable. Ask for forgiveness of the areas that you've fallen and failed. Clear your heart and then share in this incredible movement of grace. This morning we'll be taking communion by means of COVID. (laughs) Um, Which is, as you come down here this morning, you'll take a, a of the bread you'll take juice, you can return to your seat. We do have uh, gluten-free options available, just let us know. But as you do that, uh, we ask that you return to your seat, take communion and remain standing and we will close our time in worship. But let's pray together and then we will share in this table. God, in your infinite wonder and grace, uh, the immeasurable things happen through this table. Things that I don't fully understand and will never fully grasp but will be eternally grateful for, which is me steeped in my sin, you called me beloved. And you sent your son Jesus to rescue me, something that I could not do for myself, so that I could have full life here on earth and the abundance of life in heaven. That's the great promise. And so, Lord, as a community, we are unworthy. But we are so grateful. And so, Lord, as we celebrate this and close in worship, I pray that you would make this ring true in our lives. Lord, what sin did, you will not only undo, but you will incredibly redeem. And so, Lord, sin and death will have no victory. But through Christ, we are fully alive. Amen. As you feel called and led, come participate in this meal, and then let's stand and close our time and worship together.
1: Joy of the desolate, light of the straying, hope of the penitent, faithless and pure, it speaks the comforter, tenderly saying, Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot.
0: Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here this morning and open your word and just take some time and and examine it and worship you and, and let you teach our souls and our hearts, Lord. The truth is, some of these things are, are rememberable. Some of them are, are things that we've gone through for years, but when pressed together, they're incredible reminders of, of what we need and who you are and sort of this created order and picture of what you did. Uh, Lord, the truth is, none of us are worthy. All of us have fallen short. But in our broken, sinful state, you did for us that we, what we could not do for ourselves. You rescued us through Jesus Christ, and you crown us with his glory that you exchanged our sin Lord, for the glory of Christ, and Lord, we are co-heirs with Jesus. And so your original intent for humanity is redeemed through Jesus, and therefore, Lord, we reign with him. And that is the promise of what is to come. And so, Lord, we recognize that that truth is powerfully real. Thank you for this table and for allowing us to share it together, to be at a place where we can gather and be connected with believers across space and time and even in this place. So, Lord, we close our time fully in worship this morning. Remind us of these singular truths, that they stand together to make one powerful and true theology, that you created everything, and that you are in control of all things, and that all things hold together because of you, that you are supremely sufficient. And we love you and thank you for Jesus. Let's close our time in worship this morning.
1: We always want to be reading scriptures. We want to be preaching scriptures, and we want to be singing scriptures. And so by way of just really um, singing scriptures, I want to reiterate verse 9 and just kind of read it over us as we head into this final song. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Hey. See yeah.
0: a hand this morning. So my hope and prayer is that you walk out of here encouraged, anchored in a true and rich theology that basically says that God loves you and cares for you. And his original intent was that you would be living in harmony with him, but that sin and all of its realness and its effects has true consequences. Fight it. Don't become complacent with it. Know that you have been made fully alive in Christ, that Jesus did and realized what we could not do for ourselves because of God's infinite, incredible, redemptive glory. Anchor yourself into those truths and go in peace.